hello, Jay Sullivan here. Not a reverend yet, but on my way. We are going to be taping the next season of It's in the Book uh, very shortly, probably in the next week or so. I'm very excited about it. We're going to finish the book of Genesis. And for our final episode, at least, I know we have a very special guest. So I'm very excited about that. We will be coming to you soon with an official trailer for the season with all three of us hosts. Uh, but now this is something that I've been kicking around for several months. I've listened back to the show and over the past over a year, I've kept reading, kept learning. And there are things that I said in the first season that I no longer agree with or that I've learned more about or that I just have some more that I wish I would have said that I just didn't know at the time. So this is going to be a little special episode full of corrections and expansions to season one. And it's just me here. And I will say, if my voice sounds a little smokier than usual, no, I have not yet started testosterone. I am, in fact, getting over COVID. Yes, after evading it for over two years, it has finally come for me. And I am very grateful to have been fully vaccinated and boosted. So it has not been too, too terrible. But that is where I am. So without further ado, let's get into it. Really, there are only, well, there's several corrections and expansions, but they only land in a few episodes, which is kind of interesting. There's definitely things in other episodes that I want to expand upon more, but some of them are going to come back in other episodes in this season, and I'll be able to talk about them then. So I didn't think it was necessary to put them into uh, this episode particularly. Let's start with episode one in the beginning. So this is not a correction, it's more of an enhancement that I thought was really interesting. In episode one, season one, in the beginning, I talked about God separating the water violently to create false binaries. Now, at the time, I did know about the Babylonian creation story in the Enuma Elish uh, that they think might date back as far as 1750 BCE. Uh, and in that, Tiamat is a saltwater deity who was ripped violently in half by the god Marduk to create heaven and earth. Uh, scholars think that this myth influenced the Genesis creation story. But I learned about Tiamat as a female goddess and, of course, Marduk as a male god. However, recently I saw a video by PBS's Storied, which I love, by the way, where Dr. Moya McTeer and Dr. Emily Zarka say that in the Enuma Elish, Tiamat is actually referred to with both he and she pronouns. So they are sort of non-binary. But 19th century European scholars flattened Tiamat into a female goddess because they couldn't handle the fluid gender. Fucking Queen Victoria and fucking colonialism, right? So if we think of this myth with a literally fluid, that is watery, multi-gendered Tiamat ripped in two by the male god Marduk to create, quote, heaven and, quote, earth, as influencing the biblical creation story, where the waters are separated by Elohim, a multi-gendered and also masculine deity to create heaven and earth and day and night and male and female, etc. It's just very rich. 
Okay, episode two, The Garden of Eden, and this is more of a correction. Uh, I said that the interpretation of the serpents in the Garden of Eden as being Satan, uh, as opposed to just a serpent, was Christian fan fiction. And while it is fan fiction, apparently it started uh, a little bit before the invention or the origination of Christianity. Uh, apparently, the first appearance of the serpent explicitly being called Satan was in the deep cut apocrypha Book of Adam, which was probably written during the same time as the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. This was pre-Christian by a couple centuries. However, it was part of the second temple culture that would eventually give birth to Christianity uh, as well as rabbinic Judaism. So I feel like I can kind of defend that statement a little bit. Uh, in the book of Adam, we see the devil going and convincing the serpent to let the devil speak through the serpent's mouth to trick Eve. If you're interested in the evolution of the Satan character, I recommend tracking down a copy of the old Enemy by Neil Forsyth. It is hard to find, expensive, 500 pages long, and fairly academic, but it's amazingly comprehensive at tracking the character from pre-biblical Mesopotamian mythology all the way to Christianity. Additionally, I read this mind-blowing book called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengro, which argues that the Western world, whatever that means, has the Garden of Eden myth so deeply ingrained that it causes us to ignore new data coming out about early humanity. That is, that the popular narrative about human prehistory, even from secular voices, is something like early hunter-gatherer humans existed in this childlike, pure state, and then naively we made a deal with the devil, with the agricultural revolution that, quote, opened our eyes, but has sent us down this road of oppression and inequality that we cannot turn back from. For a very popular example of this Eden-inspired prehistoric narrative, you can read the wildly popular book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, which I will caveat is somewhat imperial apologist and ends by predicting that humans will evolve into immortal cyborg gods and was also well-loved by Mark Zuckerberg. But it's got some good stuff in there as well. However, according to these Davids that wrote The Dawn of Everything, evidence shows that hunter-gatherer societies were probably diverse in their governance and much closer to modern humans in behavior and intelligence, and that shifting to an agricultural hierarchical model was at least originally not naive, but considered choice, even if at some point we clearly hit a point of no return. Now, I'd argue that we can read the Garden of Eden myth along these lines as well. The serpent isn't lying to Eve. She weighs the pros and cons and chooses to eat. And as we see over the course of Genesis and the rest of the Hebrew Bible, people have multiple chances to sort of create a new Eden, but they keep fucking up over and over again until there is kind of this point of no return. Now, this is not to say, see, the Bible was right all along, but rather, I think it's interesting to read these ancient mythologies through the lens of modern science and see what meaning we can glean from them, rather than to just place them diametrically at odds with one another, or to erase one because it threatens our belief in the other. All right, episode six, The Tower of Babel. 
Okay, so first off, we have a correction. I said that scientists think that all humans originated from the same two people and that Lucy, the first human, was, in a sense, Eve. But I now know that that is not exactly correct. At the time, I was going off of the popular narrative around the fact that all humans have been shown to have a common mitochondrial DNA ancestor, meaning a common XX ancestor, and a common XY ancestor. And this narrative very much shows the Davids who wrote the Dawn of Everything's thesis that the Garden of Eden myth is so ingrained into our popular narrative that people take data and sort of retrofit it onto that uh, popular understanding of the Garden of Eden myth, whether or not it's really even supported in the Garden of Eden text. But anyway, after a fair amount of learning about early humans, my understanding has changed. While we apparently do all have two common ancestors, an XY and an XX, it's misleading to call them Adam and Eve, as in the first two humans. Instead, what scientists think, as far as I understand it, is that our two ancestors, genetically male and genetically female, probably didn't even live in the same time and place. And there had already been many generations of humans running around all over the place. These two humans somehow just happened, by luck, to have their descendants spread out sufficiently to be every modern person's ancestor. They don't know exactly why or how these two individuals wound up having their offspring take over the world, but that is the current theory as I understand it. Still very interesting. And now more of an enhancement to the Tower of Babel episode. After we taped that episode, I thought a lot more about the Tower of Babel because there is so much there. There is, of course, it being a very early science fiction story, which I wish we had touched on a little bit more, but as a very early science fiction story, you can see it sort of hit all the same beats in which humans use their new technology, in this case bricks, to try to become like gods and are then punished for it or humbled for it. And in that vein, I was thinking about modern technology and the internet and the echo chamber hellhole that social media has become and how it reminded me of the Tower of Babel story and that it started as this thing that we thought would unite all of humanity and ended up fracturing groups and locking people in echo chambers where we can't understand anyone outside of our bubble at all. Look, says God in the story. They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. Now, I was going to write a sermon about Twitter as the Tower of Babel, but then we had a baby and moved across the country to Texas, and I forgot about it in the fray. But then, this May, I read an Atlantic article by Jonathan Haidt called Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been So Uniquely Stupid, and it made a lot of points I was thinking about very well. So I'm just going to quote it here. Haidt writes, The story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s, and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong, very suddenly. 
We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. It's been clear for quite a while now that Red America and Blue America are becoming like two different countries, claiming the same territory, with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. But of course, this is an interpretation that sees the collapse of the tower and the resulting apocalypse as bad and unity as good. There is another way to interpret this. The indigenous Australian author Tyson Yunkaporta in his book Sand Talk actually takes this as a pro-diversity story, one against sedentary homogenous civilizations. He compares Babel to an indigenous apocalypse story, which I'm going to quote here. Yunka Porter writes about a time when all the tribes and clans of the region gathered and stayed in one place in permanent settlement. There were abundant resources to support this lifestyle, and the people assimilated into one uniform language and culture, forgetting their previous diversity. A massive meteor crashed and killed most of the people, scorching monitor lizards with different marks to make diverse varieties as a reminder to the survivors of the right way to live. Move with the land, maintain diverse languages, cultures, and systems that reflect the ecosystems of the shifting landscape you inhabit over time. That is the blueprint, and we, indigenous Australians, are not the only people who know it. You might recall a similar biblical story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel. Which, I think, is similar to what David Waters was saying in our episode. That to reach divinity, we must learn from one another through our difference, and not stay stagnant and expect homogeneity to bring us to heaven. Now, I want to highlight that these interpretations aren't mutually exclusive either. I really want to get away from the idea that singular interpretations are always at odds with one another, because that is a binary way of thinking. It's in the book. It's in the book. Okay, that is what I've got for you today. I hope some of you found that interesting, and I hope it whets your appetite, because once again, we will be coming back. Before you know it, you will hear a proper preview or teaser for next season, and then we are going to start dropping episodes. Very excited. You're going to learn all about the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is so much more I could have said about last season, uh, you know, when you just keep reading and learning, sometimes you just, it can go on forever. The things you want to amend or take back or add to, and that's really what learning is. I really appreciate you all being on this journey with me, with uh, us as, as Sue and David and I continue. We're really excited to come back. 
I would like to thank my Patreon supporters who have stuck with me and us as we have made these huge life transitions, moving to Texas, having a baby, uh, getting our Beloved King EP out, uh, the Beloved King music video can now be seen, and we are working on finishing up, arranging the last of the songs, uh, the script is now on New Play Exchange, we've really been moving on that uh, despite everything. You can of course see all of that at belovedkingmusical.com. We have the music video up there. We have links to the EP. We have uh, links to New Play Exchange. And I will talk to you very soon. Thank you. I love you. Bye-bye. <laughs>